This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the call. I am Brandon Baker, Vice President of Development at Rand. Thank you all for joining us today. Um, as you know, these are challenging times, and I sincerely hope that you're all staying very safe. While we can't gather together in person right now, we can still bring our experts to you. As supporters and friends of RAND, we want to make sure we're helping you assess information that is based on facts. We want to be a resource for you in these difficult times. We believe the best way to deal with complex problems, including this crisis, is to base decisions on the best possible evidence. It's the approach RAND has always taken. And it's why supporting our researchers and students is so important. We recently launched a major fundraising campaign to help RAND increase our agility to act when the time is of essence, like now, and to support the important work featured on the call today. You can learn more about supporting RAND with your philanthropy at campaign.rand.org. Now, I'd like to turn this over to Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations. He'll moderate the call and introduce our speakers. Jeff? Thanks, Brandon. Here in Washington, I'm joined by Jabra Notman and Howard Schatz. We are together in a very large conference room, at least eight feet apart, I would say. Hello, Deborah and Howard. Hi, Jeff. Okay. Uh, Deborah is a principal researcher at RAND, the former longtime vice president and director of our Infrastructure Safety and Environment Unit, as it was known under her reign. And Howard is a senior economist at RAND who specializes in international economics including the relationship between economics and national security. We're joined from Redondo Beach, California, by Krishna Kumar, a senior economist, director of international research, and the holder of RAND's Distinguished Chair in International Economic Policy. Hello, Krishna. Hi, Jeff. Um, also in Washington, but uh, not seated with us, is Jennifer Kavanaugh, a senior political scientist and the Joel and Joanne Mogi Truth Decay Fellow. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, today's call is scheduled for an hour. It's being recorded and will be made into a podcast on RAND.org. You've got one good way to ask a question, and that's on Slido. A lot of you have already been posing some questions there. If you would like to jump in, uh, go to sly, S-L-I dot D-O, and enter code 323. Like last week, we've had an enormous response to this call with hundreds calling in, so we won't be able to get to everyone's question, but we'll answer as many as we can. So let's begin. Uh, we'll start with the U.S. economy. The economic hit is clearly going to be massive. Some bank analysts are predicting a 12% drop in GDP. In the second quarter, some are expecting 24%, some even more. What's the government going to do about it? Obviously, we don't know quite yet. They're still haggling about this in Washington, but maybe Deborah, could you take us through some of the options currently on the table? Sure. So currently under debate in the Capitol as we speak is phase three of the federal response to the crisis. And what's on the table is a $1.8 trillion package of a combination of measures to provide immediate relief to individuals through direct cash checks, $350 billion in loans to small businesses to cover their business interruption expenses, $500 billion to provide relief to other businesses through primarily loan guarantees, and a number of other measures. This is just to provide immediate injection of basically cash, liquidity, to individuals and small businesses. But of course, right now, there's something of a deadlock uh, within the Senate as to how to proceed. And real differences of opinion with regard to how that $500 billion would be divvied up to businesses. Could you talk a little bit about the different buckets and what the intended targets are, what maybe some of the possible effects could be from this? Sure. Well, you know, the immediate need is to get money to individuals, or that is one of the immediate needs. And the measure that's being used. There have been multiple avenues for doing that. In this particular bill, Congress is proposing to get at least $1,000 or $1,200 per uh, adult, $500 for children, uh, for all those who have filed tax returns. So that is an issue of not, there are many people who have not 
filed taxes, and they, in fact, would not be provided for in that particular mechanism. So there are other social safety net uh, uh, programs through Social Security or uh, food stamps and the like where aid will need to be uh, provided there. The the small business, there are several proposals out there to deal with small businesses, uh, largely through the Small Business Administration and through uh, loans. You mentioned $1.6 trillion. Eight, 1.8. 1.8 trillion. We've been talking $1 trillion, $2 trillion, $1.8. Maybe, Krishna, could you weigh in on the big number? I mean, what should the number be? How much can the country afford or should it afford? That's a great question, Jeff. So just to put that $2 trillion in perspective, the U.S. is $21.4 trillion economy, according to our latest numbers. So you're talking about 10%, right? But interestingly, if you look at the drop that people are projecting, that is about 10% of the, of the economy. So given the drop in GDP that people are projecting, this does not seem an unusually large number, right? And one of the uh, things that people are worried about is even going into the crisis, we were running huge amounts of deficit and our debt was standing at around, like, say, 100% of GDP. So the question is, do we have leeway? But these are extraordinary times. They call for extraordinary action. In fact, at the end of Second World War, our debt to GDP was 121%, and we clearly, you know, bounced back from that. So as long as the recovery does not take too long and the economy can get back on its track, I think these numbers are not that large in the larger scheme of things. But how about how to allocate the money most effectively? In fact, Howard, I think you may have another way of thinking of that question. So if we think about how to allocate the money, we can think about it two ways. One is what will get the economy moving more rapidly. So economic activity will create employment, and that's one area of recovery. But I think that's the kind of thing we want to think about um, uh, a little bit down the road. We need to start planning soon for how to recover. But the immediate need is people who are going to lose their jobs who don't have protections. And the immediate need is public health and health professionals. So in some ways, we want to give direct assistance to people who will have no other supports. There are different ways to do that. You know, one way is to give something to everyone. That may be the quickest. It's certainly not the most efficient because there are many people out there who will not lose their jobs or who will not lose sources of support. The other uh, is that we want to somehow make sure that businesses that are at true risk will survive in some way. And so that could be assistance to businesses or at least assistance to financial institutions that would otherwise see all their loans go bad. Mm-hmm. Deborah? So we've, we've mentioned individuals. We've certainly mentioned small businesses. The other category of perhaps immediate needs, certainly on the emergency response and uh, medical costs, is state and local governments, local governments in particular. And they are on the front lines. They are spending enormous amounts of money. Unlike the federal government, they're all required to balance their budgets. And they also are operating under debt limitations in many cases. Some of these Local and state governments have reserve funds, rainy day funds. Others do not. So there is a push now in Congress to immediately inject money into state and local government budgets to make sure they've got their staying solvent, too. Kirsten, did you want to weigh on on that point? Yeah. In addition to what has been mentioned, I want to mention unemployment insurance. As well, because, you know, if you look at the way the disaster was unfolding, the response has been the phase one was, you know, immediate health provisions. Phase two was, you know, paid sick leave and free testing. And now we are thinking about the next step. People are getting laid off how to get, you know, money to them. So, you know, the $2 trillion package does involve boosting uh, state support for uh, unemployment insurance. And you can see For example, states like California are already waiving the one-week wait limit and and so on. And the second point with respect to what Howard was talking about allocating resources, I don't want to make these signs any more surreal with having two economies agree with each other, but I have to completely agree with Howard. 
that you have to be very careful as to how you allocate resources because we have, in addition to the government debt being 100% uh, of our GDP, we're going into this with the corporate debt being at $10 trillion or about 47% of GDP. So while intention to help companies is, is well placed, we have to be careful. And as Howard was mentioning, companies that have a good chance of surviving. In other words, these companies would have done well where it's not for the crisis and they should be at the top of the list uh, for us to help them. Well, maybe that's a place where we can find for you and Howard to disagree. Which companies should be getting more or less of this money? Should Apple get uh, a few billion? Kirsten, you can go first if you like. Uh, Clearly, Apple has a huge amount of cash reserves. In fact, Incentive compatibility, as economists would call it, would not make the interest on these loans, you know, too low because you want people with future prospects and companies that lack uh, cash reserves who were chugging along well, who were behaving responsibly fiscally to be able to get this money uh, first. So, for example, 16% of publicly traded U.S. companies are not even making enough money to pay interest on their debt, right? So that's the reason why you have to choose these, you know, companies carefully. So clearly companies that have cash reserves can fund out of cash reserves to be able to do so. And otherwise companies that have future prospects and are not saddled with a huge amount of debt going into the crisis should be at the top of the list. I think the other point is, is program design is you want to make the assistance. You don't just want to give assistance to companies away for free, at least to larger companies. If it's a loan, they're going to have to pay back that loan. You would like it to be ideally something, let's let's take Apple since you raised that, Jeff. You would like a company like Apple to look at the terms of uh, an assistance loan and say, well, those aren't very good terms. It's much better for us to use our cash. Mm -hmm. Uh, There has to be some skin in the game by the companies. Whether that skin in the game is some kind of higher interest rate that they would face, or if that skin in the game is some kind of restrictions on what they can do uh, for a period while they have the assistance, such as whether they can buy back stock or not, or or how they treat employees or executive compensation. Uh, These are all the kinds of terms that you would want to design so that companies would then have to make a choice that it is worth their while to to do this. Um, And the U.S. government would not be throwing away money where it's not needed. Just looking at a few of our, it's a lot of questions. Some are getting at the bigger picture here, which is to try to put this in perspective. How does this compare, for example, to the 2008 financial crisis? So right now, the most recent estimates uh, generally coming out of investment banks are that the quarter two decline in the U.S. economy will be the largest quarterly decline since World War II. The decline in quarter four of 2008 was uh, annualized. It was about 8.4%, and that was the largest decline since World War II. Estimates are putting uh, the annualized decline in quarter two of this year at somewhere on the order of, uh, let's say, 13%. That's uh, So that's annualized. That would be a 3% decline approximately just for the quarter. So it's very large. If we look historically, again, there's been work done on what disasters do to economies. Very good work is now, so we, if we look at World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, and the Great Influenza Epidemic of, of 1918 to 1920, which is our, our best comparison, the Great Influenza Epidemic was in the top four. It was, number, it was number four in terms of economic decline behind what we would normally think of as having caused decline. So we are looking at very big decline. When we look at major events like this, we see GDP decline, we see unemployment go up, as we're seeing now. We see equity markets decline, but we generally, in most cases, see very low risk-free interest rates, so government bonds, for example. And there's some discussion about why that is the case. I think in this case right now, and as we saw in 2008, there's a big flight to quality, or there's a flight to certainty, and the U.S. government, even at the debt levels that Krishna mentioned, still offers the best certainty for investors to get their capital back. Uh, so, so those are those are what we're seeing now, and kind of those are the standard patterns for a major disaster like this. 
One way, uh, Jeff, I think the two cases differ is that the 2008 Great Recession was a financial crisis that spilled over into the real economy, whereas this is a real health crisis that is spilling over into the economy and the financial sector, which is why we have to be careful that we don't convert a health crisis into financial crisis. And from a policy implication point of view, that is why it is extremely important to contain the health crisis first, because if we do not do that, people are not going to go out, people are not going to spend. So therefore, you know, the first aim is to contain the the health crisis. And the hope then is that the recovery will be, you know, hopefully steeper than it was in the uh, 2008 crisis. And we just need to be very careful with the resource allocation that we do not end up converting this into a financial crisis. So Robert Oslato had exactly that question. How close are we to a recession or worse, a depression? This is Howard. Uh, We are probably in a recession right now. Depression, you know, I want to be, they always say economics is the dismal science, but, uh, and I hope Krishna and I agree this will be twice in one hour. We're actually extremely optimistic. You know, at at the bottom, we're just going to tell you that markets will solve all problems. How, How more optimistic can you be about that in general? So depression, that's a, that's a tough call. There's, there are huge differences between now and the 1930s. And I'll identify two differences. One is that we've learned from events. We have a pretty good government infrastructure on how to handle these issues. And in fact, the government infrastructure is swinging into action in ways that we certainly didn't do in the Great Depression. And in fact, in the Great Depression, uh, the Federal Reserve did exactly the opposite of what it should have done. That was that was a big problem. So, so on the one hand, we've learned from the past. And on the second hand, Ever since the great financial crisis of 2008, with new laws in place and with the bureaucracy that handles this, so the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, I mean, these people are fully prepared. They they know as well as anyone can how to handle this issue. And that's why we saw last week, that's why we saw the different financing facilities get rolled out by the Fed. Uh, and that's why we're seeing big rescue packages now. And that's also why we're seeing this uh, in the rest of the world. The U.S. package, we're actually moving a little faster than Europe, but it looks like there's going to be a European package, too. And again, here, Europe learned very hard lessons from the euro crisis of 2010-2011. And they've even made some missteps now, but they quickly pulled back from those missteps. John Ancelotto asked questions right on this point. they asking regarding the equity and bond markets, what are our thoughts on the recovery rates comparing Asia-Pacific, Europe, and U.S. regions? And then to your last point, which is the almost near recovery already of some of the first hit countries, China, Japan, Korea, what what might we realistically copy from these efforts? Well, I think I'll just jump in on that one. Um, It's a close connection, I believe, between the, the response to the public health emergency and getting that under control mm. and then being able to restart the economic engine. And I think there's a distinction to be made here between the restarting process and the kind of fiscal and monetary policy you do for that versus a stimulus when you're, you know, truly in a, a deep depression and or or, or a deep recession uh, as we were in the 2008 crisis, where we really needed to pump up demand and, of course. Unemployment was was much higher than what we were at least a couple of weeks ago. So a lot is depending here on the timing of getting the public health crisis, I think, under control as to then what we're going to experience in terms of, uh, of re, re, restarting the uh, or getting the economy back on a growth path. What One interesting uh, point here, Jeff, is that Normally during recessions, there, there was this talk during the Great Recession, whether there's a decoupling, right? Like whether the uh, emerging economies and the developed countries uh, are behaving in different fashions so that if one part of the country is not, world is not doing well, can the other countries do well? Okay, so it doesn't always happen, this decoupling, but we have seen this in the past. 
And if indeed China, Japan, and South Korea are going to recover uh, earlier just because they face the crisis first and they seem to be getting out of this first, you could see this quote-unquote decoupling happen where uh, they first start off and bear the burden, if you will, of, of reviving the global economy. Let's not forget that we are all hugely interconnected with global supply chains. Uh, you know, we talked about Apple. Apple had to shut down many of its stores uh, in China after the after the crisis, and they're reopening them. So uh, uh, for the globalized U.S. companies, this might offer some relief if some parts of the Asian uh, economies uh, pick up pick up faster. Okay, there there are two other questions that are somewhat related, and uh, they have to do with essentially whether the cure could potentially be worse than the than the disease. And uh, the question from uh, Sylvia is whether leaders are thinking of an exit strategy to emerge from the shutdowns and isolation. Is it too soon to think of that? Uh, uh, we had uh, another question, if I can put my finger on it. Uh, uh, are we at a, are we at a close to that time where we just have to get back to work as a country? This is from Mark. And to end the stay at home. So I, I guess what I'm what I'm asking is, what is the risk that the cure, social distancing, severe social distancing, economic slowdown, turns out to be more harmful than the, than the disease? Who would like that? Sure, I'll I'll start with that. Um, that certainly is a risk. Um, let me start backwards. That we don't about just getting back to work now. I would refer, this is Howard, I would refer to what Deborah said. We have to take care of the health first. Um, and if we trace through the causes of the economic problems, the causes of the economic problems were a supply shock caused by a health crisis uh, in China and then spreading and then demand shocks. But we also have other supply shocks with Europe being uh, being uh, closed also. So if we if we don't solve the health problem, this could go through waves. In fact, the, the 1918 to 1920s uh, flu and, uh, pandemic went through three waves. And so that would certainly be um, uh, not something we wanted. Uh, but it's not too early to start thinking of recovery. And so the idea is that public health authorities should really, uh, and, and I'm sure they're doing this, I would hope they're doing this, is thinking about how long do we have to, do different communities have to remain in lockdown before we're reasonably sure that, um, that the virus will not spread anymore? And then, uh, or spread too fast. Or spread too fast. Um, and part of that may hinge on the development of a, uh, of a vaccine. Uh, so, so, uh, we do want to release people from the lockdown at some time, but not too soon. And and that's not a that's not necessarily an economic issue. Uh, if 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 the lockdown remains for a long time, that may just mean that more assistance would be needed, uh, because even though a lot of businesses are shutting down, many businesses are not shutting down. Uh, and so it's not that all of economic activity is coming to a halt; it's that some economic activity is coming to a halt. This is where. You know, adaptive management applies to to government. Uh, we're familiar with this in, in certainly business dealings. As you get in new information, you make changes, you pivot in your business strategy. This is the government's going to need to stay agile. Of course, many of these decisions are being made at the state and local level um, based on their own circumstances. So it's not a, a wholly coordinated response nationally at this at this point in time. But um, what what should be uh, going on, I can't say it is, is, is thinking about what those trigger points are, what those decision rules are going to look like for easing up the restrictions. It may be contingent on the availability of testing and the ability to uh, segregate uh, those who, who are infected uh, and allowing those who are not um, and who don't pose dangers to, uh, danger to others uh, to, to be back out and about. So, uh, you know, there's a number of contingencies here that, that could start to look like what the, what the exit strategy is from where we are now. But well, maybe the availability or non-availability of testing has forced our hand in a certain way. 
So it's been a very blunt, in the absence of widespread testing, you know, this has been a very blunt, blunt edge uh, instrument to, to get people uh, from making contact with one another. Yeah, just one thing about exit strategies. Let's not forget that the Fed has been pumping the economy with liquidity, much needed liquidity, right? Because the, the, the financial plumbing system, uh, you know, has a danger of getting frozen and you want there to be a counterparty to, to buy the assets and so on. And the Fed is, is doing that. So one other exit strategy we need to think about is, you know, how to, you know, ease that uh, as time goes on so that we don't have inflationary pressures in the economy. I know that nobody is thinking about that right now, just as it should be because, you know, getting liquidity where it is needed right now is most important. But the Fed has done this in the past where they can unwind their quantitative easing. Uh, even going into the crisis, the banks were sitting on $1.3 trillion of excess reserves. The cash was sitting in the banking system. So think of it as a dam where a lot of water, a uh, lot of water is getting um, accumulated. And if there is a crack, all this is going to enter the economy and cause inflation. So when we think of the exit strategy, we should be thinking about uh, how the Fed is going to unwind quickly enough so that we don't face inflationary pressures in the future. Krishna or, or Howard, I wonder if you might, uh, there's a question from SY about the way Japan dealt with this being quite different from that of Japan. And uh, perhaps if they're going to recover similarly, then wouldn't it be better to take the Japanese approach? Well, Japan, uh, the Bank of Japan did, um, you know, uh, end up with uh, the security purchases as well. So it's not like they've done something very drastically different on the on the policy side, but they might have been a little bit different on the stay at home and and other policies. I mean, one of the things that uh, is becoming very clear is that um, the uh, effect of this virus is is highly uh, heterogeneous across the various countries. What is happening in Italy is very different from Spain, and even within the U.S., you are seeing what's happening in in New York and and Washington and California are extremely uh, different, right? In the in the broad set of policies, it's not clear to me. Uh, that the Bank of Japan, for example, acted in a very different way from the uh, Fed. In fact, they coordinated together and and with the with the ECB. So even here, once we start seeing, you know, all the funny thing is that all three of us are talking economics, but we keep coming back to the primary health crisis and the need to uh, keep the number of uh, cases under control. Uh, once that happens, we might have. Uh, more flexibility in in our our policy actions as well. You know, one thing when we 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 talk about the where the money is going to go and how much should go there, we we haven't delved too much into infrastructure yet. And and I wonder if we should be thinking in terms of billions going into or hundreds of billions going into infrastructure as a way to either guarantee employment or to kickstart necessary infrastructure uh, reforms? Maybe, Deborah, you could tackle that. Sure. Well, in the very short term, when we're still in this health crisis, uh, pumping money into infrastructure is not going to help because we're trying to not have people in workplaces, uh, whether the workplace is out on a highway or at a water treatment plant. But certainly once we start to come out of the immediate health crisis, um, you know, I think there's uh, going to be a huge need for um, to help bolster state and local budgets, and having that funding uh, focused on infrastructure operations and maintenance would be, which is not what the federal government typically does when it provides aid to state and local governments for infrastructure. Um, that would help enormously and take pressure off those those uh, local budgets mm. uh, to be uh, uh, using on, on other social services, public safety, and the like. So in the near term, I think, uh, as we're starting to come out of the health crisis, getting money into the infrastructure sector to make sure that deferred maintenance, which would is probably going on as we speak, 
and we know that there's a huge backlog in many places, uh, could at least, uh, there, there could be progress made on that. And then over the longer term, uh, to start pumping in more, more money into the infrastructure to, for, for new, for new projects. But, um, I think it's, this is an area where you don't want to be throwing money around, uh, without some, uh, careful thought about how to target it to actually get the, the national benefits that you're looking for, as well as the employment benefits. Make sure that you can match up your labor, your, your excess labor to the extent you've got, you have unemployment in certain areas and can get that directed to the infrastructure in that region. Um, so I, I do think that's, that is going to be a way to, uh, to get, uh, the economy moving again, uh, once we're in a position, uh, to do so. Those jobs don't last, uh, they're temporary. Um, over, and, and this, this would have to be spread out over probably a 10 year period. So this is not a quick injection of money into the system just to be able to get, uh, get it properly directed, but it would be beneficial. A related point is, oh, sorry, uh, Kristen, did you want to weigh in there? No, I was just going to add, uh, just one point to Deborah's, you know, really excellent summary is that some of the jobs that are likely to be created are at the lower skill level. So from that point of view, uh, getting those people back to work would be an added advantage. Right. Good point. You know, obviously transport infrastructure is being used a lot less right now. What does that have any knock on effects in terms of, I mean, here in Washington, the trains are running at a much lower frequency. I presume there are fewer people on them. I presume revenues are down sharply. What is that? Well, this do? is having a huge effect in major urban areas where they're trying to maintain the transportation infrastructure, the, the public transit, uh, whether it's the New York City system, New Jersey transit, BART, well, WMATA, uh, Metro here in DC. Um, their, their revenue uh, streams have just uh, totally collapsed and yet as a public utility in many ways, they need to keep operating. And so the operating subsidies to these entities is extremely important. Um, and I, this is what is under discussion in the, in the Senate now, uh, particularly for the, the transit agencies. Um, these, these almost all have uh, deferred large backlogs of deferred maintenance and the like. So besides just keeping them operating, this is why I say as once people are able to get back to work, uh, pumping money in to, to get these systems. Uh, I suppose to, this could have even other knock-on effects, such as municipal bonds not being quite as sturdy as they once were. Right. I mean, so, so all sorts of things have been happening with the municipal bond market, which many of our listeners uh, are perhaps following. Uh, basically, the market fell apart Uh uh, one, one bond trader was quoted as saying there is effectively no municipal bond market. That was on Thursday. Um, today, uh, with the Fed action, there seems to be, you know, some, some restoration of, uh, or semblance of a market. But the problem is that because of this liquidity crunch that Howard mentioned, um, the, uh, bond, these bonds, which have an extremely low default rate at something like 0.01% over the last 40 or 50 years, um, are being sold off, uh, in return for, uh, purchasing of, uh, of 10 year treasury bonds. So, um, it, there's going to be a huge demand from state and local governments to borrow immediately to go back into, to go into this market. Um, they're going to be, uh, it's going to be tough for them to sell those bonds until there's a stabilization in these, uh, in these markets. Sullivan has a question on Slido that follows on this one. If the economic recovery is so tied to the health recovery, as we've mentioned a few times, aren't we completely in uncertain times and could, as to timing, be looking at a year? Oh. Um, yeah, well, we are in uncertain times, uh, and the uncertainty is driven in part because we don't fully understand the nature of the disease. Uh, once we once we learn more about that and how to deal with it, we'll we'll um, certainly have much more certainty. In terms of duration, 
that's going to depend on uh, what we learn about the disease. Now, if the reports from China are correct, uh, China basically shut down for about two months. Uh, China, parts of it are now, while not operating at 100%, are back operating decently. There are still many locations in China that have some some uh, some restraints, uh, so so they're not fully recovered. Uh, they're in some ways uh, worth watching to see, uh, uh, provided the information coming out is correct. They're worth watching to see whether what they've done, in fact, has uh, reduced the disease to either manageable levels or no levels, and then uh, to see how their economy is recovered. So, you know, if they've been, if they're operating partially after two months and that continues on a trajectory, perhaps we're looking at another two months or even six months. Uh, that might be a fair way to look at it. And uh, then if there's, uh, unfortunately, if it reemerges, sure, we could be looking for a year. But right now, given China's trajectory, it looks like it's at the, you know, four to six months, uh, but with a very wide error band around that. Deborah. I'd actually like to inject a note of optimism here, which is that in the in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, Speaking about, again about state and local government budgets, they were hit really hard, and uh, many didn't recover and kind of get their finances back in shape until the last couple of years. They learned a lot, and the vast majority of states had these rainy day funds, same for most cities uh, as well. There is more resilience uh, in in their financial management. So. While they're going to have, they have short-term revenue, they, we hope it's going to be short-term, but they've got these revenue shortfalls now. They also are building on a, on a somewhat more um, solid base and know what to expect coming uh, in, the, in the coming years of having to adjust their revenue projections. It's their tax, anything uh, states dependent on. Um, income taxes, capital gains, they're all going to see big, big hits. But overall, I believe there's more resilience in the system at that level than there was uh, in the 2008-2009 period. One one thing adding to the uncertainty, Jeff, is that um, some of our health experts are saying that uh, the virus could recur in the fall, but as uh, Deborah and Howard mentioned, if we can even get a few months respite, we can actually prepare for it. We can put in more protections in place uh, for workers and consumers. And in fact, you know, preparing some of the healthcare equipment and so on can itself be part of the uh, recovery process if we can handle training and placement of, of uh, workers. So I tend to be a bit more optimistic as well. And in fact, one of our colleagues looked at some of the pa past pandemics, and he was able to show that the economy in all cases, most recently the SARS epidemic, uh, turned around and grew uh, grew faster right after the, after the crisis. One of our callers asks, uh, what are going to be the long-lasting impacts from the virus, both medical and economic? I think this crowd may be better able to handle the long-term, the long-term economic impacts. Uh, yeah, uh, there. I think we're going to see a number of things, and these are going to sound very familiar to people who um, have been watching the trade war, for example. I think there's going to be a lot more emphasis on um, resiliency of supply chains, on diversity of supply chains. Um, the the other the other thing is I think that there's going to be uh, much more sensitization to risk. Uh, or one would hope there's much more sensitization to risk in the sense that, um, you know, there may be some, uh, there may be some things that, that seem very good for the economy in the short and the medium and even the long run, provided nothing terrible happens. But if something terrible happens, such as a global pandemic, uh, then, then the economy shows itself to be very weak. So what we may see, uh, to put that in more concrete terms, we may see uh, more government consideration of uh, of what must be or what should be produced in the United States. 
maybe more stockpiling of goods that we think would be important uh, in the case of disaster or other crisis. Uh, so this would mean somewhat less efficiency uh, in the economy, but uh, maybe it's something something like an insurance policy, where for all of us, uh, we pay insurance, and those uh, who are lucky, for them, it's just an expense. But for people who are unlucky, there's a big payoff. Uh, and so I think diversity of supply chains, as well as uh, more, more thought to uh, how much should really be uh, produced outside the U.S. and what should be retained in the U.S.? Well, Alan on Slido has a related question regarding the supply chain. Given that much of the needed medical supplies are imported, shouldn't the recent Trump tariffs be rescinded? Um, so I won't go into whether the Trump tariffs should be rescinded. I will say that um, there, there are there are no... There are no trade heroes so far uh, from the pandemic. Uh, there have been uh, several dozen new restraints uh, added onto trade in medical supplies. Uh, and I do not think any of them have come from the United States since January. Um, in addition, uh, many countries are what we're learning are that there are a number of trade restraints on basic things. For example, and this is coming from uh, from from the very good team in Switzerland at Global Trade Alert, there are a number of countries that have high barriers on soap. Uh, and all of a sudden we're learning that maybe you don't want high trade barriers on soap. Uh, so, um, so certainly there is now discussion among trade economists and trade policy people about the uh, uh, tariffs on, on health equipment. And I think that's gonna go hand in hand, not only on uh, uh, trade restraints on medical goods, but on production, uh, location of production of medical goods. No, I was just going to say along those lines, you're already seeing a huge increase in scientific and medical cooperation across uh, countries. So um, counterintuitively, actually, I think this can bring the world uh, to together. People are searching for cures and trying to understand this more. So I think you're going to see more scientific and medical cooperation uh, going forward. Okay. Uh, we have a few more questions on Slido. And just to remind, if you want to get in in these last eight or 10 minutes, uh, the code is 323. We have a question about testing, which uh, given the medical, the health, and uh, economic uh, effect, if there was more widespread testing, wouldn't that enable people to get back to work more quickly? We could only confine the sick if we knew who they were. Um, I, I will take that, recognizing that I am an economist and not an epidemiologist or a public health specialist. But either for better or worse, uh, that has never stopped economists from talking about <laughs> things. But I will approach it from a data perspective, uh, which is that if we were to have more widespread testing, we would probably find we have a lot more cases. So what we know about the disease would change dramatically. We might find that the fatality rate is actually lower than we think. We might find that things are more widespread. If we did have more testing, we'd be able to do more contact tracing. In some ways, it would allow us to recover more quickly uh, because we'd be better able to see where the disease is going. Uh, and that was one of the big advantages coming out of, coming out of Korea. Um, so, and Korea has actually recovered fairly rapidly. So I think you put those together, Probably a more rapid recovery, a more targeted intervention with uh, with people's health, and then a much better knowledge of of the nature of the disease. All right, let me get you economists back on more solid territory. Uh, question from Thomas Small: What are the three most important things a city and its business community can do now to speed its economic recovery from COVID nineteen crisis? So uh, steps to increase confidence, uh, right? Increased interventions in public health. Uh, even now, to make sure that local economies don't decline, uh, think about what steps can be taken to keep businesses going. We're we're seeing that somewhat. So, allowing uh, or facilitating restaurants to do takeout, for example, uh, very good. The other thing, I mean, cities and municipalities, especially smaller towns, are going to have limited ability to finance recovery. Uh, if they do have reserves, a question could be: Can they delay? 
uh, taxation? Can they delay fines? Can they delay things that will cause their residents to have to pay into the city rather than to um, to to pay for businesses? I just I would just add that that uh, picking up on Howard's last point that uh, forbearance is is a word that I think we're going to hear a lot about or already are hearing about not just from uh, the point of view of banks uh, and and their loosening of uh, of, of terms with their uh, their borrowers but uh, that may there may need to be a similar type of approach by local governments. Uh, to enable their businesses to get back on their feet um, with uh, putting off tax payments or making, injecting some flexibility in the way tax tax payments are made over the next several years rather than uh, uh, requiring payments to be made immediately. Zooming back out to the larger world, what is the impact of the virus on international relations and the U.S. position in the world? We already touched upon this, and in fact, uh, Ambassador James Dobbins and I have a piece that should be coming out saying that close should not become the new normal. Um, you know, this is not a time for us to, uh, you know, the temporary barriers that we have, you know, erected out of necessity to make them permanent. We, uh, you know, we live, uh, you know, we, we quote uh, an author who said that uh, you cannot protest against globalization because nobody is in charge. Globalization is a result of, um, you know, seven to eight billion of the world's citizens wanting to be interconnected and wanting to be in the uh, global uh, supply chain. Uh, so I already uh, mentioned, for example, the um, medical and other uh, coordination that, that exists. So therefore, I think that uh, we should be if anything, as Howard was mentioning, try to cut down trade barriers, increase cooperation, be more uh, a greater part of these, uh, uh, you know, of these uh, uh, multilateral organizations. Let me add to that. Um, there is there is something of a of a PR effort right now in terms of major countries trying to uh, establish themselves as the global leaders. I think it's much too soon to. Um, to say whether this will actually have any effect. Uh, what people who may be skeptical of the U.S. should keep in mind is that um, is that the U.S. moved very quickly uh, to shore up its international partners, in particular, as we did in 2008 on the financial side by extending the Fed, extending uh, swap lines, first with major uh, central banks and then with uh, and then with emerging market central banks. And the world, uh, for better or worse, uh, operates on dollars. And the U.S. moved very quickly to make sure that the world could continue to operate on dollars. So there is multilateral action going on at, at many levels. Uh, and I think it's, it's much too early to say how the globe will reshape, especially because it depends on countries that really have the capability to serve as international leaders too. Those markets clearly are not appreciating the uh, uncertainty of our current times. Uh, I'm bringing Jennifer Cavanaugh here. Uh, Jennifer, is that uncertainty, how is it being affected by what you've written about, which is truth decay? I, I would presume that, that this, this diminishing of trust in institutions and media and, uh, and government to a certain extent uh, would increase the uncertainty. Is that that true? Yeah, that is true. Truth decay contributes uncertainty in a number of ways. So the first is just through the myth and disinformation that exists, both about the virus, about its mortality rate, its uh, its trajectory, how quickly it spreads, how it spreads, whether you can spread it, whether it's asymptomatic. There's a ton of uncertainty and conflicting information on that topic. There's also myths and disinformation about government policy, whether you're talking about local and city governments or Congress or the Fed. Um, there's rumors about everything. I can give you numerous examples of friends who have contacted me um, all upset because of something that they heard from somebody's friend on Twitter or on Facebook um, about the New York subway shutting down or other types of restrictions being in place. And it's not that hard for me to point them to more official sources of information like the New York City, uh, the New York City official account 
or the mm-hmm. New York subway official accounts, that they can give them much more accurate information. So there are better sources, but when people don't know where to turn, they can respond or overreact to uh, information that could be false. And the second key way that truth decay contributes uncertainty is through the lack of trust that you mentioned. Um, trust is very low in all of the institutions right now that we're looking to for information and that we're looking to for responses to this problem, whether we're talking about the government or whether we're talking about uh, media. Uh, trust is low across all types of media platforms and all levers of government. Uh, it's higher for local government, higher for city government, but still uh, really very low in the in the bigger picture. Uh, so people don't know where to turn for good information, and they don't have any confidence that the government has this situation under control. My colleagues have all already mentioned several times that in order to stabilize the markets and have an economic recovery, we first have to control the public health crisis. And part of that is not just actually controlling it, but having the, the American public believe that the government is capable of dealing with this crisis and kind of has the situation under control. And that can come before the actual recovery occurs. Is that trust getting, is it strengthening or is it weakening at this point? How is the crisis affecting the trend? Uh, I definitely not strengthening. Um, I, you know, we don't have really good like daily public opinion data on this, but uh, you know, from what we've seen, um, you know, the Fed took pretty significant actions this morning and then we still saw the market go down. So people still have very little confidence that this situation is under control. Case numbers are going up. Hospitals don't have the supplies they need. There's no evidence that I've seen that would lead people to believe that this situation is under control and to have increased trust in any sort of institution that's out there. Um, so right now, the situation seems, um, I mean, I'm, I think that this situation provides the opportunity for the government and for the media to rebuild trust um, in a way that... Um, in a way that they haven't been able to over the past decade or so, we've seen a long-term downward trend. And this is an opportunity to turn that around. But I haven't seen any evidence from any institutions at any level, really, with the exception of maybe a few governors that have really taken actions to instill people with the confidence that this situation is under control. And until that happens, I think the prospects for economic recovery are, are pretty slim. All right, we're just about out of time, uh, so I'm going to hand it over to Brandon. We didn't get to all the questions, but maybe we can uh, handle a few by email. We'll try. But anyway, Brandon, please take it away. Yeah, thank you so much, Jeff, and thanks again to all of our uh, experts here. And for all those of you on the call, we do appreciate your participation and your ongoing support. Um, Stay tuned. Um, We will be in touch with more opportunities to hear from RAND experts and to stay engaged and informed with us. Please, everyone, be well. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.